Today's episode is brought to you by Flats, a Chicago-based apartment community. Welcome to the Pivot Arts Podcast, where you'll find innovative performances plus interviews with artists and experts. I'm Julianne Ayer, the director of Pivot Arts. Today, I'm speaking with two prominent arts leaders and producers, interdisciplinary artist Jovan Landry and Goodman Theater Artistic Director Robert Falls. We'll hear excerpts from Jovan's Women in Hip Hop album called Synergy, as well as the Goodman Theater's production School Girls or the African Mean Girls play by Jocelyn Bio. First up, I'm joined by interdisciplinary artist Jovan Landry, whose many accomplishments include bringing together over 50 women artists to create Synergy, an all-women-produced and performed hip-hop album. Well, hey, Jovan. It's so great to have you here on the Pivot Arts Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um... You are just such an interesting artist to me. Uh, Vershawn Sanders Ward from Red Clay introduced us last year. He made that yeah. great video of their work a little bit under pressure. We, we right. were going to produce them live and then just quickly we're like, oh, there's a pandemic. Make a video, please. Yes. <laughs> we made it happen. Yeah. Yeah. We all we've all been adapting. Well, I noted that, so I was reading your bio, and I noted that you started creating video blogs at age 16, which I absolutely love that you did that. Um, Can you just tell us, like, who or what inspired you to do that? Um, Tell us a little bit about just your early entry into media. Yeah, well, so I've always been interested in media and even music, too. My mom always played music. Mary J. Blige was like an okay. uh-huh. artist that I grew up on. And then my father was also interested in music, too. So I, I came from two music, like two music lovers. But right at the age of 16, this was like when YouTube was coming out. I had a computer and my cousin, he introduced me into music. And so me already loving music and already was interested in music to have someone that's like, hey, you could actually make music. You just have to have these tools and the software. I was like, I could do this because my only like representation of music was through, you know, the radio. So I thought I had to be famous to make music. It's like I was interested, but didn't know the tool. Yeah, it's so important for young people to have those influences. Exactly. And, you know, I've seen just also that you've done already some really impressive mentoring projects as a teaching artist. How do you think we can get more girls and young women, especially BIPOC young women involved in media production? Yeah. So, I mean, I already feel like we're we're doing it by just putting ourselves out there. It's just a matter of, and word of mouth, Word of mouth really helps and even collaborating with organizations that's already out there who may have like a bigger audience because I'm I'm just one person. I may know some people, but maybe if I partner with a youth organization or with an organization that tailors to BIPOC people, then that can help kind of get the word out to other folks. But I feel like social media has been kind of like the driving force of showing representation and making it possible. 
just in terms of like the mentorships that you've done about um, this synergy project, you brought together a whole bunch of women collaborators mm-hmm. to create a hip hop album. What yes. was that experience? Wow. It was, it was up and down, up in the sense of like, I've learned how to be a leader. Again, like I said, I never, I've always kind of been like a laid back, chill individual. I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a leader. I mean, but now I, now I consider myself to be that. So to spearhead a project was, it really helped me own up and really get into, fill that role. And also um, being able to be like a listener and being open to different ideas because something that I really stressed for this project is that I didn't want it to feel like Javon Lange's project. I wanted everybody to feel like it's their own. So letting people have like creative control, um, but still having like some kind of structure and some organization is, you know, always important. Everybody that's a part of that project were, you know, really believed in what Synergy meant, which is to bring women in hip hop together, to bring women in film and all these different art disciplines together. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about Michelle Obama actually addressed this, uh, this like idea of imposter syndrome, this feeling that like, oh, I'm a woman and I'm not supposed to actually have a seat at the table or Mm -hmm. I'm not old enough to have a seat at the table. And, you know, you talked about just stepping up in this project and realizing that you could be a leader. And I'm wondering what was that process of overcoming any feelings of that imposter syndrome that so many women or people of color can suffer from? Mm -hmm. For, for me, in terms of this project, it was knowing that, well, a, the, the project was funded by the, we were creator awards grant. So knowing that in my head of like, okay, well, I just can't let someone give me this amount of money and not do anything with it. Because before it was like, this is an idea that I had. And I was kind of just, you know, pitching it to some people. So I was doing it very lightly. But now when when this grant was presented, I'm like, oh, snap. Like, I have to, like, <laughs> I got to do it now. And and even just for the people that's like supported, like supporters of me and like, I feel like I was being counted on. So mm. I think that served as like a motive, a motivation to really fill into that role. But also when things fell on the, on the wayside, like, okay, well, this isn't working. So I have to like make an initiative to like push a little bit harder when I'm usually like, like I said, laid back, quiet, want to be the nice, you know, person, don't, don't want any problems. But when you're doing a role like this, it's like, you have to kind of be hard just to let people know, okay, this is not something that, this is not just, I mean, it's not a hobby. Like this is something that I want people to take seriously because I work hard to get to this place. So I want everybody that's a part of it to have like that same feeling and motivation. So yeah, I will say just just being counted on from all side, from all spectrums, from family, friends, supporters, the grants. And luckily, WeWork wasn't really like on my back or anything, but still, that's, I've never received a grant before that. So I really feel like I had to step up. Yeah. I, you know, I love that, that somebody trusted you, they gave you the funding, and you, it was an opportunity to say, we believe in you take this funding, make something awesome. And, and you did. And I, I think that's fantastic. And it's kind of a lesson to funders too. Like, yeah. you know, trust artists, 
fund projects, that's what helps people feel empowered, you know? That, exactly. That, that they believed in you. Yeah. So I was kind of geeking out before <laughs> we started recording about how impressed I am with you. Um, you call yourself a Chicago-based interdisciplinary artist whose mission is to demonstrate authentic stories of the world. And I just really saw that on your website. And I mean, I feel like I could spend like 10 hours on your website. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you can. Maybe a day, a couple of days. <laughs> going to go like some to some remote island just so I have time to look through your website. You have yeah. so much going on and it's yeah. all so high quality. Your photos, your videos, uh, your mentorship of young artists was really moving to me. You know, you're really walking the walk, like other people say, interdisciplinary, but you have so many, so many different avenues through which you're creating work. Does digital media create kind of more access for communities of color, especially than having to attend a live work? Or do you, do you feel like the access points are just kind of different? Uh, I feel like the digital works are definitely making things more accessible I'm just thinking, it just made me think about um, a project that I'm working on. Um, it's called Take Some, Leave Some. And we're going to, our end, our end result is to perform on the south side of Chicago. And as I was like looking up the write-up for our project, we were saying like, we want to be specific to perform on the south side of Chicago, um, especially like where I live. I'm in, in the Pullman neighborhood. Oh, so Most, you're really far south. I'm really far south. <laughs> and it's like for the outsider and even for like, for example, my dad, he he lived near, he grew up near um, the Pullman neighborhood and he was like, oh my gosh, you're living over there. You know, <laughs> so a lot of people have like stigmas of like, oh, well, this area is bad or, you know, and so then that bring then that then that means that it's not going to be accessible for like our, the Southsiders or okay. maybe people outside yeah. of the city. So, but but with having like the digital technology, that's that's definitely going to make it accessible. But then you're gonna need a camera. But then again, you have phones and all phones and laptops have cameras on it, so anybody can do it now. Um, but the live performance. I feel like it's still like a work of pro- a work in progress in terms of like making it accessible to people of color. But I think what we as artists need to do is make opportunities, what, whatever we can do. I, I know there's organizations, I know there's buildings that exist, you know, in these inner cities uh, or outside of downtown. So it's just a matter of like collaborating and making it possible. So that way people mm-hmm. can come and say, oh, this, you know, this area is actually not as bad as I thought, you know? Mm. Oh, this is really beautiful. You know, I have visitors, like my friends come down, they're like, oh, it's so quiet over here. Oh my gosh. And it's just like, see, you just have to open up like the, your borders around you and just Mm. be like open to exploring. And sometimes, yes, it's scary. And even if like for me, like I went to New York by myself for the first time and I didn't know what I was going to get myself into. I was nervous. I was in my Airbnb for okay. like all day. <laughs> but then I was like, you know, I got to get out there. And once I got out there, I was, I'm, the trip was like amazing. My first trip ever to New York. Okay. Just, I was fear. I had a lot of fear, but then I just put myself out there. And sometimes you have to do that to, you have to get uncomfortable to get to those comfort zones, you know? 
one thing I'm curious is, you know, there are a lot of kind of white led organizations wringing their hands, trying to figure out how to get more people of color to come to their shows. Um, once we're back in life space, I mean, what would you advise some of those organizations? Like, what are they doing wrong? Well, <laughs> I would say they definitely need to involve more, you know, people of color, melanated people out there. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's one thing to be like, okay, come to our shows. But then it's like, well, you you don't look like me. So, I mean, not to say like, I, I don't come to shows that, you know, I go to all different types of shows, honestly. But I think when it's more relatable to your audience, you know, it's tailored to your audience. You have people that's on in your organization that's curating these shows. So, again, it's all about representation, because if you're just like, yeah, an ally is good and everything, but you also need to involve us in every step of the way and have us inside of the shows as well. Um, and then from there, those people that's in the show could bring their friends, their family, that's, then that's going to bring more of, you know, the people that you want to see in your show. So it's just a matter of having just the representation every, every way or every, and every step. Yeah, for sure. Representation is so important. And like you said, not just on the stage, but behind, behind the scenes as well. And who's yeah. making the decisions about what stories are being told and, mm-hmm. and all that. Okay, let's take a moment. Okay. Leap into the future with me. The yes. pa- I know it's uh, we're going to get there. We got to get there. The pandemic. We have no choice. It's over. Let's just yes. imagine it's over. What like what's an ideal performance event going to look like for you? I'm closing my eyes. Close your eyes. And I am imagining. <laughs> and this is where you insert the dream. Music. Right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> the magical music. Um, well, something that I've always wanted to do. Well, I'm in the future, so I'm not talking about what I want to do right now. But I am doing a show that involves all of the media that I'm involved in. So from music to film to photography, I can see myself in this gallery or some kind of large space. And since I'm like within the dance community, I have to have some of my dancer friends doing some movements to some music that I'm making with some live videography happening where it's projected onto the walls and doing some kind of like improv work, but then also like involving like some raps and and all of that lighting technology. Lots I just of sweaty bodies, sweaty bodies, breathing on each other. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and people will be there, and it will be informal. It won't feel like you have to look a certain way, have to dress a certain way. People have to perform a certain way. People are just being and trying things out, and it'll be like super magical, and it'll also be just theatrical. Mm. So. And that's always something that I wanted to do because I like starting out as like an interdisciplinary artist, you always, I, you always get that thing of like, well, what do you want to do more of? Or, you know, or maybe some people may not even acknowledge that I do 
these other things. Or some people are, are like, oh, I didn't know you did that you did this. So just making it known and like doing shows like that, maybe it could be like once a month type of thing and maybe feature other artists as well that's in the same category or, or another inter, interdisciplinary artist. But that's something that, that I really like dreamed of doing, of making like my performances like art shows. Mm. And, I love and, it. Yeah. I yeah. Sign me up. Yes. I'm buying a ticket now. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. And this is what I do kind of appreciate about the pandemic is that it has you sitting and thinking and imagine if we didn't have this pandemic, we would have just continuously did the same thing, same thing, same thing. But now it's like, okay, let's do something else. Let, you know, let's sit and think a little bit. So, yeah. So I appreciate in that way because now I feel like, okay, I need to step up and do something different. What next? How do I top myself? Javon, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been so great to hear about your work and learn more about it. Thank you so much. And shout out to Pivot Arts. Pivot Arts. (laughs) (laughs) You are now listening to Interlude, Chicago Women Hip Hop. From Synergy, the first all-woman produced, perform, and engineer hip-hop album. An interview with Chicago hip-hop veterans MC Flipside, Unmovable, Lady Gemstar, Jaquanda Villegas, and Tasleen Jamila on what it means to be a woman in hip-hop from Chicago. Recorded and arranged by Jovan Landry. Music produced by Kism. And mixed and mastered by Vibes. woman in hip-hop from Chicago means that tough skin had to be developed like super early on. If I didn't have that tough skin, it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made it past the first open mic. I'm proud to be a woman, whether you be talking about being a mother, being a mentor, being a boss, an activist, a leader. You have to take charge of your own things. It's a lot of hard work. You gotta have the dedication. You just can't give up. You just gotta work, work. Resilience, freshness, innovation, power. You know, Chicago is in my very core, and I didn't realize until I actually moved away that how much of a Chicagoan I am. Doing music in Chicago, you gotta have that tough skin. You just have to. Otherwise, it, you wouldn't you wouldn't survive. You would be eaten alive. <laughs> like there ain't no other place. Like Chicago. It's like no other city. There's no other city in the world like Chicago. It's like the underdog, the the one you don't expect. expect. We're like the seasons. You never know, you know, what that that change is. We'll flip it up on you. Uh, We're we're confident. I carry that confidence. Some people call it arrogance. I'm like, no, I'm highly confident because I know what God made me. And Chicago is definitely a part of it. If you can make it in Chicago, you can make it anywhere. I think that it's, it's, it's a dope thing to be from Chicago in general. Um, when you talk about hip hop, or you talking about revolution, we set the we set the stage for that. Women are the the mirror of creation. Next up is an interview with Tony Award-winning director and artistic director of the Goodman Theater, Robert Falls. 
Hey, Bob, welcome to the Pivot Arts Podcast. I am so delighted to be here with such an expert podcaster. I, I, I've become an expert. You know, it's been it's been my pandemic pivot here. Well, that's that's good. I was trying to learn the guitar and learn Italian. None of those things. <laughs> neither of those things happened. So it could have been put to far better use if I had just started to learn how to use technology I, the way you did. I, I hope you were doing them both at once, singing Italian <laughs> arias. If if I was really good right now, I I would be playing my guitar, singing Italian arias. Next pandemic, you've got to commit. <laughs> well, we've known each other for a long time. What you probably don't remember is I actually auditioned for your production of Landscape of the Body when I was a teenager. So I'm just going to take a moment and thank you for not casting me. Thank you for not making me a childhood star. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. But looking back at those years, you know, and I hope you don't mind if I if I take a little trip down memory lane here. But what really stands out for me, uh, it had a huge impact on me actually is your production of Hamlet at Wisdom Bridge. I was a high school student. My parents must have taken me down there. And it really blew my mind. I was a huge Talking Heads fan. I loved that moment when you played Burning Down the House. Um, if you could go back in time and mentor your younger director self, what what advice would you give that director? That's a that's an interesting question. I look back and and I I never really had any mentors. So I, I actually the thought of myself being a mentor to myself is a little bit of an abstract concept that I can't quite you know, I was so busy being myself at that moment and in the present that I don't quite know what I would have said because I, I felt fairly complete about certain things, overconfident, way, way overconfident when yeah. I look back at it and, and almost naively confident. You know, it's like, I think what I've, and what's interesting is I think what I've, I've, uh, I feel that as I've gotten older, I've lost confidence, but made it up in wisdom. Mm -hmm. Whereas back then I had no wisdom, but boy, did I have a ton of confidence. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, how would you say your directing work has evolved over time? Well, I think that um, I would hope deepened and gotten richer, and it's sort of what we're talking about, that that sort of element of confidence and incredible energy that, that I, I think I had when I was in my early 20s, you know, that fades away a bit. You know, subsequently, as I've worked on Shakespeare, I've, I've become far better at researching and spending time with the text and really living with it and really working with it. And I think that that ability to go deeper into research, I think slowing down and listening and being present with actors. I also think that over the years and, you know, my, my, my approach to work has changed a bit. There was a period of time when I was really kind of sick of myself and sick of most theater, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. that seemed superficial to me or, or lacked a, a depth, which is understandable considering the short rehearsals we're all generally granted with. But about, you know, about 15 years ago, and granted I was probably late 40s, 50 at that point, things changed and I went into a deeper study of, of, of kind of Stanislavski, and sort of slowed down the way I worked with a text 
gave myself more time and, and it was it was sort of actually life changing. And was that when you were directing Chekhov? Yes. Okay. It, it, it really did. It, it began. I had been using, there was a wonderful book um, by an English writer, teacher, director named Mike Alfreds called Different Every Night. And I, I had read that and was just overwhelmed by, by the fact that it, 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 it really sort of nails one thing, that, that we spend our lives as directors and actors trying to rehearse or as the French say, you know, repetition, you know, literally to repeat, to repeat, to repeat, in order to present the appearance of actual life and of spontaneity, particularly <laughs> spontaneity. And one of the things that Mike Alfreds really was after was making it truly spontaneous. Could each moment really be uh, fully prepared, but alive in that moment and actually happening and all the actors had to respond off of that. So I started experimenting with that about five years before the checkoff. Mm. I started integrating uh, without really understanding uh, a different kind of text work, kind of old fashioned actually, but at the same time, I think incredibly still relevant. And then that did lead to a deeper study of Stanislavski that took me to the Moscow Art Theater uh, working with the dramaturgs there, looking at newly discovered texts by Stanislavski, and then also st actually studying with Mike Alfreds in London. Uh, and I spent several weeks working with him and using the seagull as as the uh, the text to really explore. And that led to the actual production, which was was sort of life-altering. You know, I'm sort of jumping here from a very long career. You started out with Hamlet yeah. which in the, uh, you know, in the mid 80s. And now I'm jumping way forward into that, the late 2000s. That, that's totally fine. You know, I was really struck with what you were saying about the condensed rehearsals in America, you know, compared to I know you presented a lot of international works like the work of Ivo von Hope. And so many of those directors have the luxury of these extended rehearsal times. Uh, do you feel like the American system is capable of changing in that regard? We inherited an entirely tr different tradition than, let's say, Ivo van Hove, you know, which comes out of a European tradition of how they explore a play and how they rehearse a play. And it does go back to, to a longer process, uh, Stanislavski or you know, avant-garde, you know, artists, you know, Artaud working or, or Peter Brook or, gosh, we could go through so many of them. Ingmar Bergman directing, mm -hmm. you know, in Sweden, where the long rehearsal process generally was part of repertory. I do think that the work is better, that all work is better with longer rehearsal periods generally. However... American actors are particularly adept and fantastic at forming relationships really quickly, at, at, at creating a company very quickly. And I have to admit, I've seen some really terrific productions that were probably put together with three weeks of rehearsal and some pretty lousy right. plays that were put together with eight weeks of rehearsal. Right. I don't really know the difference, <laughs> you know. But I think right. that American actors actually have that ability to jump in, make things happen quickly. It's very much the American way. But yeah. overall, I, I do think, particularly as directors, we, we benefit from a, a longer, slower investigative process. 
Right. Well, I guess working quickly definitely helps you make work that's relevant to the moment, respond to what's happening immediately. So many of your productions, your notable productions have reimagined American classics such as Death of a Salesman, Long Day's Journey into Night, which both won multiple Tony Awards, including Best Director for Salesman. Why are you drawn to 20th century masters like O'Neill and Miller? You know, when I read those plays when I was a teenager, it was pretty easy to identify. I, I identified strongly with Biff Lohman and the entire Lohman family when I, when I first read that play. Uh, and similarly, while I didn't particularly, I mean, they both have, you know, they both have young men at the center of them. And there's Edmund in Long Day's Journey and Tonight. But the Irish Catholicism world of that play of O'Neill always resonated with me. It, it reflects at least half of my family background, which is my mm -hmm. father, who's an Irish Catholic, who, who came to the Midwest from New York City. His parents had come to you know, the, the United States from Ireland a long time ago, alcoholism running through many strands of my family. And just the muscularity and the immediacy of those, those, those writers. I, I just, you know, I have this memory I, 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 of death. Well, it's not a memory. It was a profound experience. Of course, I would remember it of sitting with my father. I was 12 years old and there was a televised version of Death of a Salesman and we watched it together. And it was the first time I ever saw my father really cry, really weep. And, and that was a, a both, that was a disturbing experience, but also well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, you go, what, a, what an amazing experience to share this play with my father. And I saw the power of that play, you know, ultimately, whatever it was 50 years later, not quite that, but getting to direct that play, you know, it's still a play which has the power to dissolve an audience, particularly yeah. men, in, into tears, to, to open weeping. So I think that's I, I think that's it. You know, I mean, the American work tends to have focused on Williams, on Miller more than others. Of course, I've done a lot of new plays by American writers with American subjects. And then I've also feel that I'm essentially a classicist working with Shakespeare, Ibsen, and particularly Chekhov. Those classics and contemporary plays can be in conversation with each oh, other. Oh, I, I absolutely, I, yeah. I think that's the best way. I think that's, for me, that's what a great theater does. And I think the ability of a director and certainly actors to be able to go back and forth doing that is 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 key to their growth and is, is just key to making art. Yeah. So when we're able to gather again, what kind of stories do you most want to tell? We're going to see great work, I think, coming out of this. It may take a while. You know, I, I, I fear that for the first months, years, you know, it's going to be a, a play about, you know, I was locked up, you know, in, in, in the Hamptons with my boyfriend <laughs> right. Right. during the pandemic. And, and we couldn't order Chinese, you know, that we're going to see a few two-character plays like that. But ultimately, the same way, well, in my lifetime, Vietnam... Uh, the civil rights movement and and the HIV crisis, amazing plays came out of that. The, the, it took a little while for the great plays right. to come out of that. They didn't instantly appear. They they needed to be. There was some time uh, that took place. But yeah, I would love to be working with those playwrights that are investigating deeply where we've been, 
and perhaps pointing to where we might go. And then again, balancing that with the classics that are always relevant. Yeah, I think everyone's just so hungry to gather and see humans that aren't in their immediate circle. I I just miss seeing strangers in the theater, you know, like being in the theater, running into people I know, but also just being among all sorts of different people is sorely missed by so many of us. Absolutely. Well, there's, you know, obviously there's been a lot of loss this year and that includes the death of your very close collaborator, Brian Dennehy, who you often joked was your muse. Uh, Can we chat about Brian a bit? How would you describe your collaboration and partnership and what do you most miss about him? Well, you know, it's funny you said that and I go, I don't, it was a joke, but it was actually rather true. Uh Uh-huh. You know, I, I certainly had always imagined, or or if one thinks of having a muse, one might think of this, <laughs> you know, extraordinarily beautiful human being. With the, right. You know, this, 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 <laughs> you know, the, this, this elegant bearing and this sort of dance-like quality and grace you know, right, whispers right. in my ear. And I didn't realize it was going to be a former linebacker from Columbia University <laughs> with a foul mouth uh, right. named Brian Dennehy. But really from the the time we met which was back uh in the 80s uh at Wisdom Bridge on Howard Street which I oh, was running Oh okay I didn't realize it was from Yeah back but then. I I I the misnomer is that I directed him there I, I met him there it was the height his career was just taking off in film uh he'd been a television actor but he'd moved into film and and was just doing extraordinary work and it just led to a friendship and when I was brought to the Goodman for my first production. I wanted to do Breck's Life of Galileo. And Brian was the the Galileo in my head and of my dreams. Mm. And mm-hmm. he had both the intellectual abilities uh, and the sensuality and, and, and sense of humor and passion and drive and bigger-than-life presence. So he was the star of my first production. And we just continued to want to work together because we were both interested in big, difficult, hairy, monstrous projects. Yeah. Uh, mixing all like sorts of metaphors. And, yeah. yeah, mountains to climb, you know, the mm-hmm. Iceman cometh and death of a salesman. And, you know, these are, these are monuments. And uh, he was fearless. And, and he's, he brought out the best in me. And I'd like to think I brought out the best of him. And we were very close friends and collaborators for over 30 years. So, yeah, his death was an inevitable but but profound loss uh, personally for me and I think people who love the theater. Yeah, for sure. Well, in addition to the pandemic this past year, there's been the social movement for Black Lives with the catapulted after the horrific death of murder of um, George Floyd, that trial's happening now. It's difficult to listen to that testimony. The Goodman has really long presented stories by diverse writers, including Black playwrights like August Wilson, Regina Taylor, Thomas Bradshaw. How did the movement for Black Lives, specifically the We See You white American theater movement, impact the Goodman this past year? There have been changes that you've been making as an institution? Yes, it was profound and painful, uh, and I think for our society, uh, and I think 
clearly a real reckoning, a uh, real ripping apart the, the constructs of, of, of uh, systemic racism and inaccessibility uh, that, you know, beginning with the justice system, beginning with policing, but, you know, extending throughout, I think, every aspect of our society, including the arts. While the Goodman, and I would say led by me over these many years as an artistic director, I do think has been a leader in our national community very early on in terms of championing the work of artists of color. For over 30 years, we built a coalition of artists, a community of artists, associate artists, a collective, a very diverse group of people who've been making theater for almost 30 years together. But yet we realized how much further we could go. And and it forced us to evaluate progress in our own theater. You know, we realized that um, there were better ways that we could, you know, we could expand how to use our art, our assets, resources to contribute to a more just, equitable and anti-racist society. But there was singular trauma that ripped through the theater. I guess that's what I want to say, particularly for our BIPOC artists and, and, and staff members, uh, trustees. And it demanded a conversation. It demanded that we really look inward and have a real conversation, which entailed difficult conversations, conversations that we had never had as an institution. And that led to wonderful work, I think, healing work, but work that isn't done, that was done by everybody at the Goodman on all levels. It was really uh, the creation of an action plan. We call it an idea plan, which is acronyms for uh, inclusion, diversity, equity, anti-racism, and accessibility. Uh That was worked on by every single member of our staff and our board for a six-month period, creating a a living document, which you can find on our website. If we're asking to be held accountable, we know that mistakes will be made along the line and stumbling, but it's a, as comprehensible as we could arrive at now, a set of goals and actions that the Goodman would like to be moving towards on all aspects of our institution, policies, programming, communication, and and there's a tremendous sense, I think, of optimism, and it really brought the theater much closer together to do really, really serious work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always experienced at the Goodman a lot of diversity in terms of the programming, and it does seem like you're well positioned to be a, a leader in the equity and inclusion mm-hmm. uh, in the country. It's mind-blowing that the Goodman has been dark for over a year now. Who, who would have thought that this could have happened? What's, you know, what's really shifted for you this past year? Like, has the pandemic changed the way you see yourself as an artistic leader? Are you an expert in making sourdough? It sounds like you've already <laughs> ruled out the Italian Arians. <laughs> Uh, what's what's well, we did. We, I did, you? like every other human being, <laughs> try the sourdough. <laughs> uh, you know, like every other, uh, you know, the, the pandemic cliche. Yeah, sourdough was part of that. We one of the things that I'm very proud about at the Goodman was, and uh, <laughs> you know, again, you, you personify that with your company. How how uh, prescient of you to use the word pivot 
at oh, the I center know. of you your. Should, yeah, I, I get so many Google alerts as how we're being mentioned in the news because pivot and arts constantly <laughs> are coming up. Theater. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're a forward thinking company. You were so we forward thinking. All this, yeah. Well, you actually have been forward thinking, Julianne, and, 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 you know, really quite forward thinking. And, you know, the idea that one has to be prepared and one has to be alert and one has to be on one's toes and that pivot has been, you know, the essential part of it. Like so many other theaters, we probably, well, it's not we probably, we have literally done 30 plans in the past year right. of how we are going to deal with the plays that were canceled, postponed, the ones that we've been planning, the commitments to our artists. One of the things that I'm very proud of in this, this really has to do with my partner, Rock Schulfer, and, and the extraordinary team of leadership at, at the Goodman. A lot of the theaters of the size uh, of the Goodman throughout the country immediately uh, looked at their organizations and everybody has their reasons, but instantly furloughed or laid off up to 80% of their staffs and went to a much smaller crew running things with the intention of bringing people back or, or not when we returned in the Goodman. It was very, very painful, very painful, but we furloughed about 20% of our staff, maybe 25% of our staff. But we kept everybody else on and every single, you know, person who's contributed to this theater on every level has been working throughout that year. You know, a lot of people have said, and again, I think this is one of the big questions within our, our field is like, well, how is this going to change programming? How is this going to change everything you're doing? And that I don't know. You know, right now, my intention is to get back into production. We had a play, a wonderful play. Uh, Jocelyn Bio's Schoolgirls or the African right. Mean Girls play, which is about three days from opening. It's sitting on our stages, a uh, brilliant cast led by a great director, Lillian Brown. And the intention is to get that play up as soon as we can. And that could be late July. That could be September. We don't know. I'm going to really hope that we'll be back up on some level, probably to much smaller audiences throughout the fall and maybe building our audiences throughout the rest of the year. But our intention is to really commit to the artists, first and foremost, who were going to direct these plays and act in these plays and playwrights who'd, who'd given us their plays. So that's yeah. the, that's, and we want to do it the best we can knowing that pivoting is still going to take place, that there's still going to be a lot of things we need to learn and a lot of things that are going to happen between now and then. But that's that's where the Goodman is right now as we move into the future. Sure. Well, speaking of the future, we're focusing this spring on reimagining utopia. What can we do, do you think, post-pandemic to make this a better world for our kids? What would you... How do you reimagine utopia? What would you most like to see changed post-pandemic? I just let out a huge sigh, which I hope you'll... <laughs> you know, I know you, you edit these things to make both of us sound better. Oh, no, we'll keep that. <laughs> yeah, keep that giant, giant sigh. Um, because, again, you know, as I already noted, it's crystal balls are not really my thing. Neither are utopias, because I, I just, it's hard for me to point to a utopia. I don't know if the idea of a utopia will ever hold or holds in, in, any, in any form. There's always going to be 
something which could tear it apart or challenge it in some way. And I think that's going to continue to be the future. I mean, I, I have, as you do children, I have three children in there uh, from 18 to 24. I certainly hope that they will move into a world that is I, better than ours is complicated because we've obviously been fortunate to live in in some good times, but they haven't been good times for a lot of people, you know, as, as, as we were talking about, the inequality has, has, has been exposed. Clearly, we're facing environmental disaster. We're, we're facing so many challenges as a society but yet, I, I do have faith in my children, I guess, and, and, and the people who are like them, that this is, a, I think, a remarkable group of young people, maybe the most remarkable group ever of, of people who've been growing up in this time period who really are hungry for change. And I think we're capable of making change and, and are looking at the world in a way that um, other generations haven't. Uh, I think that activism is is almost baked into a lot of their DNAs, certainly my my children. I, I love how you're talking about your kids. I, I have, as you know, a 12 and 14-year-old, and they do give me a lot of hope. This generation, it's to me, they're the TikTok generation. They are creating their own content. They are very political, uh, very aware of gender and accepting of people who are different. And so they do give me hope, you know, I, I hope that, that they'll make, make up for, for some of the inequities that we're becoming more acutely aware of in this past year. It's going to take a while, you know, it's, it's not all children, but I, I do think that the children are the key, you know, yeah. sounds like I'm about to sing some maudlin song of the 1970s, <laughs> 80s or 90s, but no, I think that is, I think it is a generation that is aware and I think it is a generation of kids with courage and people who want to go forth and make this very much a better world. So that's where I do have hope. I just think that it's it's going to be a complicated, difficult process. But, you know, all of us have gone through that. The world has gone through that. Theater has gone through that change. There is no such thing as permanence. Everything is impermanent. Everything is shifting and moving and 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 hopefully in a much better, you know, direction. Bob, it is uh, so great to chat with you today. Thanks oh yeah, for, you too. Yeah, well, thanks for being well, part overdue. of our podcast. Overdue, overdue, overdue. Yeah, in a few months we'll uh, we'll be able to maybe see each other. You know, see you know, humans I, again. <laughs> I think that's. I I think. That will happen, actually. I, you know, I think. Well, look, look in that crystal ball of yours. You know, we'll we'll start studying Italian together. Well, yes. Well, the on one <laughs> the one little tiny glimmer within that crystal ball is that I, you know, I, I I for the first time all year there has been a sense of optimism, even though we're still in rough, rough patches and we're not out of the woods. I think that there is a sense that this country is going in a better direction, and that. You know, science can save us. <laughs> you know, the belief of science is a pretty key element. So I, I'm fairly confident that within the next couple of months, we will see each other uh, in the theaters. Uh, and that will be a wonderful thing. I look forward to it. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Julian. Thank you. 
following is an excerpt from the Goodman Theater production of Schoolgirls, or the African Mean Girls play, by Jocelyn Bio, paused during the pandemic, but resuming live performances when it's safe to gather. Now she is a girl that can actually stand a chance against the likes of the beauty queens of Spain, Brazil, France, and Colombia. Well, yes, yeah, she's lovely, but I think many of my girls would. You know, it has become clear that MGU judges are fond of girls with a more universal and commercial look. So you are saying what exactly? That we are looking for girls that fall on the other end of the African skin spectrum. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Eloise, how can you, of all people, co-sign with that? Um, big money, <laughs> big promotion, and one step closer to owning the Miss Ghana pageant, something a woman has never done. Oh, this isn't about women's equality. This is about you. And I'm not going to have my girls used as pawns for your nonsense. Eh, eh, this pageant is no nonsense. <clears throat> it is an amazing opportunity for a girl from our country to travel the world and represent Ghana. I feel insulted that you would doubt my efforts. The MGU platform is a highly respected one. Platform, please! You, you haven't changed one bit since secondary school. If it doesn't benefit you, who cares? That's right. And look at what that attitude has afforded me, darling. I am Miss Ghana, 1966, and here you are still trying to keep up with the popular girls. And here you are. Still trying to be one. Thanks for listening today. To learn more about Pivot Arts and our upcoming events, go to pivotarts.org and click on Get Updates or follow us at Pivot Arts. Today's episode was underwritten by Flats, a Chicago-based apartment community, with editing by Hannah Forschler and original music composed by Andrew Hansen. I'm your host and producer for Pivot Arts, Julianne Ayer.